Hi everyone, it's Damon Klotz, host of the Culture First podcast and Culture Amp's work culture evangelist. This bonus episode of the podcast is part of our Working Through It series, a seven-part multimedia experience of curated content to help people like you and I work through this time of tremendous personal and organizational change. Now, this episode is from part six, but you can see all of the content from the previous parts at culturefirst.com slash working through it. And when you're there, make sure you subscribe to get all of the future parts delivered straight to your inbox. All right, let's get started. Hello, I'm Rosh Kumari Niyogi. I am the founder of iRestart. I'm an executive coach and I am working it through by breathing. Culture first. 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 I'm Damon Klotz, and this is Culture First. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Culture First podcast. Today, you're going to be joining me for part six of our Working Through It series, and we're going to be focusing on the radical evolution of high performance. Now, I can't wait to tell you all about my guest for this episode, Raj Kumari Niyogi, and why they left what many people would call their dream job working at a tech giant and under an incredible leader. But before I do, I need to tell you a story. One of the things that I've loved about doing these Working Through It episodes is that they're part of a much bigger multimedia series where we look at these subjects from many different lenses as well as many different perspectives. So at culturefirst.com slash working through it, you'll see video interviews with experts on motivation and performance, as well as stories from practitioners and resources from some of our favorite partners. So why I love this approach is that it means that on these episodes, I don't need to boil the ocean when it comes to subjects like performance, which is exactly why I'm not gonna be focusing on what is a high-performing team and definitions about that, but rather, what is one of the ways that you can ensure your team won't be performing at a high level? And that is when you have a culture of exclusion. So I want you to stop and think about a time when you've experienced one of these situations, when your idea that you put forward was immediately dismissed how you feel after experiencing microaggressions like constantly being interrupted and talked over in meetings, and when you're having a one-on-one with your manager or leader and it's just obvious that they're distracted, multitasking, or potentially just not even listening. Now, I've been in those situations before, and it doesn't feel good. You don't leave them feeling engaged. You don't really feel like you're ready to perform again at a high level right after that meeting. And ultimately, it can leave you feeling potentially excluded. So in this episode, I brought in someone whose conversations and theories consistently leave me flawed with astonishment every time I'm lucky enough to hear them speak. And we're going to be discussing topics like epigenetics, which is hard to say, but incredibly fascinating. And we're going to answer questions like how do you build a high trust and a high performing team? So to give you a quick little summary... Epigenetics means that when you're showing up for a meeting, you're doing so potentially with 200 years of genetic mapping. And to build trust, we should be speaking from the right hemisphere of our brain. 
Oh, and we're also discussing a fun little segment on how do you pronounce my name? All right, so it's time to get straight into this episode and introduce Rajkumari Niyogi. So to start each episode, like we're here to talk about epigenetics and inclusion and exclusion and performance and like how do we show up at work right now? But before we kind of dive into all of that fun stuff, there's a couple of questions that I wanted to kind of set the stage with. And the first one is one that I always ask people, and it's one of my favorite questions. And based on your work and how fascinating your work is, I can't wait to see how you answer this. So with all that build up, the question is, Raj Kumari, how do you describe what you do when a 10-year-old walks up and says, excuse me, what do you do for work? Hmm. I get people to feel their feelings. And then can you give me an example of like how you do that in the workplace? Because if it... If a 10-year-old goes, okay, but like I'm always feeling feelings, like how do you how do you help me feel my feelings? Yeah, and then I would ask the 10-year-old, and are you able to talk about your feelings? Are you able to really um, find which feelings are what body sensations? So do you know when you're angry versus when you're upset versus when you're annoyed or impatient or when you're worried or anxious or confused, right? So asking the 10-year-old, not only can you feel your feelings, how are you able to articulate and express them? And when you do express them and you are able to articulate them, how are you being received by the person with whom you're speaking? I feel like the 10-year-old. Literally as if I were talking to a 10-year-old. Can you tell me? <laughs> yeah, I feel like the... Uh... I feel like the 10 year old would be like, I'm pretty good at saying exactly what my feelings are and like telling people about them. I think it's, I think it's adults who definitely need the help. So if, if I was that 10 year old, I'd sit, sit there and say, yeah, no, I'm good. I think you should go spend some more time in, in workplaces. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it's so interesting. I had uh, four six year old come uh, be guest speakers during one of my boot camps. And it was really wonderful to ask them, you know, how do you, how do you handle conflict? And Every single answer was a variation of just hug it out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love that. And then one of my intro questions for you is actually a question that I know you're fond of, which is what are you feeling right now and what are you grateful for? I'm feeling a little stressed that I might not be showing up exactly in the ways that you need (laughs) and to really deliver and um, be exactly the correct and competent person that you would like. So just noticing that and that um, awkwardness and vulnerability, even in sharing that statement. Um, And I'm really grateful for the incredible abundance in my life and just um, really able to be so present in this really difficult time and show up for people in in ways that I didn't actually know I could do. And that's been a very humbling and rewarding experience. And for people who aren't familiar with your work or haven't seen you give a talk before, what is it about that question that you find so powerful? You know, I I think for me, what, what is so rewarding and and heart tugging if you will is as i'm coaching you know senior leaders co-founders ceos and when they have their epiphany 
when something lands, when it resonates, when it they when they just have that aha moment and their whole face lights up and their body kind of sinks a little bit, you just know they get it. And that that in and of itself is transformation because now that they've experienced that level of clarity, they're going to show up differently moving forward. And it's that moment that it just... It makes it all worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing to have the aha moment. It's another thing to know that like the when you're doing work with people that you know that their behavior is going to change and that they're seeing not only seeing something in a new light, but they're willing to actually practice something in that new light as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've just had the honor of watching people really, really take to heart the time that we spend together and and really want to move from a place of dysfunction or toxicity or um, dissonance really and step into okay you know I'm gonna roll up my sleeves I'm gonna figure this out how do I how do I work with my team so that they actually like me so that I can really be there for them how, how can I get them all on board and communicating and collaborating and 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 and, and it's in those moments that are just like wow that is so cool mm. Yeah, and certainly, you know, this is a podcast to help leaders of teams, of projects, or of any level of responsibility, you know, really show up for their team. And I think right now, so many people are trying to work through it, not only for themselves in their personal and professional situations, but also knowing that people are turning to them in the, in this moment and knowing that, you know, a lot of the things we're going to talk about are hopefully going to help them be able to show up more for their team so they can actually perform at a high level. And you know, in order to do that, I think it's important for us to define some of the key concepts of your work before we start solving all of the world's problems. So, <laughs> um, you know, for those who aren't familiar with your work, I think it might be um, important to start with just like a definition of epigenetics. And then we can kind of look at the topics sort of underneath that, that you talk about a lot, like belonging, inclusion, and disruptive diversity. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an epigenetic coach and um, consultant, and really focus on coaching through the lens of epigenetics and neurobiology. And neurobiology is simply the study of the nervous system and how the stress factors impact that nervous system to react. And epigenetics is a relatively newer science, and it basically says that um, the stress factors that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis actually determine how our DNA expresses itself. It's, it's pretty fascinating. There's now a ton of research that shows we carry those stress factors for over 200 years. Rachel Yehuda talks about 210 years. Uh, Dr. Joy DeGruy talks about 300 years. And Rezma Menachem talks about uh, 490 years. So it doesn't really matter what it is. It's a long time. <laughs> yep, very long time. And so what we start to understand when we do a deep dive into this epigenetic um, world of behavior and stress factors is we quickly find that we are carrying the titration of mindsets transgenerationally. And that these core beliefs, these mindsets are actually embedded in our cellular biology. And it actually determines and predicates how we are going to act and engage with others around us all the time. Now, the really awesome thing about this is that it's completely reprogrammable, rewirable, so otherwise it's just doom and gloom and despair and that would be unfun. But we have an opportunity to really shift the way in which we show up 
from an epigenetic stance through the rewiring of the neurobiological aspects, the, the nervous system aspects. I remember that the first time I heard you speak about this, and I, I know many people have this kind of moment where it's like your mind kind of like blows, the top of your, the roof of your head kind of comes apart, everything starts flowing out, and you're like, I am what? I'm 200 years of experiences in my body right now, and what I'm feeling isn't just my feelings, but it could be like my grandfather's feelings. And then p- people come up to you afterwards, and you're like, so help me. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, like it's such a, um, you know, when we think about living in presence and living in this current moment, it's like, yes, you are who you are and you have this ability to breathe and work through things and to feel all the feelings. But we're of, of course, we are only here because of the work and the experiences of our predecessors. And it's just such a powerful way to think that, of course, everything you get to feel right now can be beautiful and painful and joyous, but it's also a reflection on so much that has gone before you. Damon, it's just uh, so, so beautifully put. Did I did I pronounce that right? Is it Damon or, oh my gosh, I'm, now I'm forgetting. I've been practicing <laughs> in my head and I forgot now. I know, I know, it's fine. It, it's Damon. For everyone listening, if you ever want to say my name, you can say it Damon or Damon or Damon or Damon. Everything's fine. Damon, is it Damon? Okay, great, thank you. <laughs> no, it's so, Damon, it's so, so beautifully put. I love the way that you said that. And, you know, when we look at belonging, belonging is just an emotional need to feel safe, right? But what we have to understand is that there's actually a technical term for belonging, and it's called neuroception. And we're born with a preset level of neuroception. And for some, it's not, that's not a great level. It's pretty low, and it's pretty uh, scary because it's, we're always on high alert. And so what we need to understand is that depending upon how we show up, and the experiences that we have, and the ways in which we're noticing our behavior, whether we are in our family culture, whether we're at the workplace, leading a team, the ability to notice, receive, and integrate the feedback is so essential in being able to shift who we are as leaders, change our sense of belonging in order for us to create a greater sense of safety and inclusion for others. Which I think is uh, one of the quotes that I've seen you use a lot. And, you know, if people are sitting there saying, like, I want to understand how to talk about belonging and inclusion together, like, write this down. You know, belonging is the ability to create safety for yourself. Inclusion is the ability to create safety for others. And, you know, it's certainly how I'm trying to show up in the world is not just what can I do for myself or get for myself or how do I like, you know, be the best version of myself? It's like, no, how do you also do that for others and coach others and help others and create safety for others? And I was reflecting on this actually right before um, we spoke with my mentor about how powerful it is, the what we experience when we create for others, when we give back to others. And so much of, you know, how I've worked through it over the past few months has been trying to help others, mainly also because I need that help myself. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, As a leader, if you're noticing that your anxiety levels are through the roof, your level of belonging has plummeted. And so it's imperative that you turn toward and begin to address what is actually the root cause of that anxiety, because your team is absolutely picking that up and now is confused about what to do. Is it something wrong with 
the project? Is there something wrong with the client? Um, did I do something wrong? What's happening here? Right? That's what the, your team is asking themselves. And so being able to have an incredible skill, mastery in self-regulation is so, so key. Knowing how to actually have the tools and resources to monitor your experiences, monitor your feelings, and then have the capaciousness to actually self-regulate. What are the tools that you have in your toolbox right now and tools that you can add in your toolbox to help regulate those feelings, whether it's stress, anxiety, depression, whatever it is, because without a doubt, your team is picking up on all the nuances, even through a Zoom call. I was just reflecting as well about, um, you know, you spoke about that, you know, some of us haven't had the best neural wiring based on our family history and that we do need to actually, you know, we can remap some of those things. And when we think about a lot of the conversations that have been happening over the last few months when it comes to talking about, um, you know, privilege and designing with, um, you know, equity in mind, I'm wondering, has there, how has your thinking kind of um, not necessarily changed, but how have you been thinking about some of the, the topics like Black Lives Matter and the idea of um, ep- epigenetics actually, you know, really being important to think about that, you know, a lot of people aren't on that level playing field right now based on stuff that has nothing to do with them. Yeah. Um, how many hours do we have for this? <laughs> you know, it's uh, really this Black Lives Matter movement and the whole um, racialized trauma and uh, the, the social justice issues that are really coming to the forefront have really invited me to deep dive into exclusion and get really uh, down into into understanding it at a, at a nuanced level. And, and you know, I just I gave a, an anti-racism talk uh, about a month ago to a pretty big company of 27,000 people. And I framed the entire thing around exclusion. Because for me, exclusion is so detrimental to the nervous system. It is It just wreaks havoc in ways that we just don't understand fully. And and if, if every leader could just roll up their sleeves and, and do a couple hours of <laughs> exclusion training, it would just be so enlightening, I think. You know, from, from, the, from the slightest interruption or, or being dismissed in a meeting when sharing an idea or being ignored during a one-on-one because, you know, your boss is looking at their phone kind of a thing, that starts to code a lot of different neurochemicals of stress immediately. You, you might think that it's harmless uh, to go ahead and, and just do those very, very tiny behaviors. But over time, they compound. And the system is very, very, very intricate and very nuanced. It will start to code your behavior as dangerous and then generalize that you as an individual are now dangerous, right? And so when we look at uh, racism, for example, what we, what we quickly understand through the lens of exclusion is that it is the most extreme form of exclusion. Exclusion is simply about being, you know, not warmly welcomed and not safe uh, by a group of people or an individual or situation. And so when we start to kind of think about ways in which we may be excluding others, now we have an opportunity to reflect on how we're showing up and how how I kind of introduce this topic is I always invite people to think about 
Remember a time when you were interrupted? Remember a time when you felt dismissed or ignored, even maybe humiliated or ridiculed or found something that someone said offensive? What were the feelings that you experienced? How did your body react? That is all the information you need to know to then move from that place of understanding into empathy and compassion. Because you aren't the only one who's experienced exclusion. Hmm. It's, um, I feel really uh, lucky that I spent a lot of my early parts of my career in training and development teams and like learning the core concepts of facilitation and training and curriculum design. And I spent a lot of time working in L&D departments um, when I was a, um, you know, early stage HR professional and, you know, how I'm showing up in meetings right now, like just because there's nine video boxes on a Zoom meeting does not mean that nine people are having the like an, an equal experience and an equitable experience and knowing that there's different learning styles and different things that people need and, you know, that you need to create space and time for people who like to process first or make the chat, you know, function just as, as worthy as someone speaking or saying, hey, like I haven't heard from you. Is there anything you would like to say and inviting that in the same way that a trainer does? And, you know, to me, all those little things, you know, even if that person says, no, no, I'm fine, but just making sure that like I don't want that voice to go unheard through any, you know, design of my own. Absolutely. And, and the second piece to that is to expend energy in having that mindfulness, in having that awareness. And inevitably, there will be a misstep. And the very simple remedy to that misstep is an apology. Oh, I cannot believe that that just happened, right? Yeah. This happened to me actually just yesterday where I you know, wrote something on Instagram for uh, one of my clients and my client texted me privately and said, Actually, it's not exactly that. It's this. And I couldn't believe that I just posted that on Instagram incorrectly. <laughs> so I profusely apologized to the client and I you know, went to rectify that immediately. That's it. Hmm. That, that is it. And I, I think the inability to take accountability for one's consequences, one's actions, one's impact, that's where the trauma begins. There's some really interesting research um, that says that trauma from the oppressor, so think of the oppressor, we can certainly go down the racial route, absolutely, but also just the bully or the micromanager even, right? Trauma in the oppressor shows up in the following ways. Inability to receive feedback. Mm. that's mind-blowing right because now if we're not able to take feedback and we're countering whatever we just received as feedback with more data we are absolutely keeping ourselves distant from the actual root issue of what's being brought to our attention especially when you know obviously working at culture amp we uh, a master's in the art of giving and receiving feedback and making sure people can do that. But, you know, for a lot of people, it can still be hard, especially if you're trying to give upward feedback to someone. And, you know, it can take a lot of uh, trust to be built and uh, feelings of psychological safety to give that feedback. And then it's like, if you're then met with like, didn't even register, and then you do it again, and then you're like, still seeing the same behavior. Again, you're just like, well, like, I'm not getting through to that person. And, you know, I think that's why when I was thinking about like the subject of performance and redefining performance i didn't want to just look at performance management theory or like you know 
what is your cadence of one-on-ones, I wanted to look at some of the like underlying things that are actually stopping us from our ability to perform. And, you know, you mentioned that feelings of exclusion can also lead to not only like low performance, but also, you know, potentially regrettable exits and good people leaving. And I wanted to, um, rather than make you share a story that I've heard you share before, I wanted to make a reflection on a story that I've, I've heard you share before. And Please. Um, so when I've seen you give keynotes or presentations, you speak a lot about when you were navigating your career, you ended up at what many people would call a dream workplace, you know, a tech giant where you had an amazing boss, someone who was there for you, great perks, great salary. Um, but, you know, to finish the story quickly, you ended up leaving and you you left because you didn't feel like you belonged and that you felt like you excluded. And, um, you know, I've heard you share that story, but I wanted to maybe go back to one of the first moments where you actually felt excluded. Like, what was the situation like? What was it? Was it in a, was it in a meeting? Was it an email? And just like, how did that actually feel that first time? Oh, what a great question. I felt confused. I felt wronged. I felt like I was crazy. I think we hear that a lot lately. Um, I felt like I, I wasn't in the same reality as other person. And um, the constant dismissal of my ideas and not being taken seriously, even though I was at a very high level and getting paid quite handsomely um, and in charge of some very significant um, uh, initiatives. And it, it just it just didn't make sense given my responsibility and my role and the ways in which I was dismissed. It just, I kept getting error messages. Yeah. It's kind of like, you're like, am I saying this? Like, am, am I speaking a different language right now? Or I'm like, are, are my glasses foggy? Like, is something like what's not happening here? And then like the first time you feel that, like you said, you start questioning yourself. You're like, I've done something wrong. That's exactly but right. It's usually not that case. It's, it's, the system, it's the culture. And that's why, you know, when I think about the containers and the conversations and, you know, the the values and all of the like infrastructure that we have inside of companies, that, that's why I spend so much time talking about this stuff. Because these are the things that makes us then sit there and say as an individual, we're like, what did I do wrong? It's like, no, like what, what are you doing in a system? And is the system actually setting you up for success? Right, exactly. So imagine you leaving a situation you're now questioning yourself that what did what did you do wrong and then you have to go back and revisit that that meeting or that person or that one-on-one and you're continuing to have that experience it it just compounds both your competence Mm. your self-confidence and your desire to even continue to do the work a groundhog day of a good day can be tough let alone a groundhog day of feeling excluded (laughs) Beautifully put. I love it. Damon, it's beautiful. I love that. I have to steal that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that is all yours. I will see that on an Instagram post soon. <laughs> you um, when I think about our ability to perform at work, it's not only, you know, impacted by our experiences that we're having right now and our current team or our current environment or whatever happening in the market. You know, it's also our experiences that have shaped us in the past. And that's why I think, you know, talking about epigenetics teaches us a lot about just not only the history of myself and my family and the patterns of how that's impacting me. But, you know, I also think it's an important reminder to look back at like when I'm showing up right now, what are the experiences I've had in the past that are impacting how I'm showing up today? So I'd love to maybe spend some time talking about 
um, PTSD of previous workplaces yeah. and how we bring, I think we could probably do a whole episode on this as well, but, you know, the experiences that we take from us from previous workplaces and, you know, when we show up in a meeting, sometimes we might be reacting or we say something and it's got nothing to do with what was said in that meeting. We're having a physical reaction to something we've experienced in the past. So, you know, do you see that to be true? And like, if so, how do we unpack the past to help us um, stop maybe to potentially limiting our performance in the, in, in the future? It's, it's a fantastic question that requires a much broader space and time to give it its proper, you know, unpacking. So I'll, I'll try to be as succinct as possible. I think at the end of the day, trauma and PTSD result in massive spikes of cortisol, right? And these, and cortisol in and of itself is very important for a bad thing. The, the key piece is that the system, after it spikes in cortisol, needs to recover, right? And oftentimes in workplaces, there is no such built-in recovery plan. It's go, 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 then I go home, then I actually with you know the kids or whatever I'm doing, and then it, you know, it repeats, right? So there is no time for the nervous system to exhale, process, integrate, and move on. And so when the nervous system is stuck on and it's constantly secreting these stress chemicals, these cortisol levels, over time, like anything else, the system becomes very used to living in high stress, high cortisol environments in the bloodstream. And then if you continue that, and that time duration extends even longer, we can actually become addicted to the cortisol. And so now we have no idea that we're running in this environment, we're, we're swimming in this cortisol environment. We have no, now it's just so familiar. We just have never given ourselves time to recover. The key piece is to definitely have someone who can mirror back that, that information so that you can notice that about yourself. Mm. But to actually begin to work through moving away from the cortisol experiences and start to change out the cortisol to different types of neurochemicals, like dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, endogenous opioids, whatever, right? And the research shows brilliantly from Sarah Payton, as you know, uh, Damon, that needs correlate to neurochemicals. And Paul Zak has done a ton of research around this as well. He's a neuroeconomist. He wrote the, uh, the article in the Harvard Business Review called The Neuroscience of Trust. When we have trust and connection, we secrete oxytocin. When we have respect and, and warmth and accompaniment on a team, we secrete endogenous opioids. When we're being playful with each other and joking around safely, we're secreting endocannabinoids. When we feel that our teammates are predictable and they're reliable and they show up on time and they deliver like whether they said they were going to, then we experience benzodiazepine, right? When we're able to speak up in a meeting, when we're actually able to share our thoughts and our ideas, now we're secreting serotonin. So we can start to see very quickly how when we meet these very critical core needs, we are actually designing high-performing teams in exactly this way. Mm. 
Whether you lead from fear or you lead from motivation through hope, you'll get there regardless. We have enough examples with toxic cultures that we can see they're still doing very well, right? Mm -hmm. What we don't see is the cost of the mental health and the well-being of the employees in those toxic environments. And if we were to have access to their healthcare costs, it would be night and day to the ones that are leading through hope. To me, this is where, like, uh, when you leave a workplace for whatever reason, on good terms, on bad terms, whether you were voluntary or in- involuntary, you know, a, a good workplace should be looking at doing exit surveys to understand your experience. But if they don't, one thing I'd recommend is doing your own exit survey. Like, what did I experience in that workplace? How did that show up? Like, what, like, when was I feeling engaged? When was I not? What was the, what type of leadership did I really appreciate? So that when you actually, you know, so you can learn what do I want to unpack and take into the new workplace so that you can show up and be, you know, the best version of yourself and perform at the highest level and do all those things. Because, you know, ideally the workplace and culture and structure is there to support us. But I think also as individuals, we have an incredible amount of power to tap into all of those things and know when we're feeling those things to know how we can actually spend more time in that feeling of, you know, high performance, of flow, of engagement. And, um, you know, they're not easy conversations to have, but what I'm hoping is conversations like the one that we're having gives people some of that language to go, no, I can have this with myself first. Yes, absolutely. And I love your comment, Damon, about support, because there's so much research that shows that when an individual actually has the perception that they are supported, there's literally like an invincibility experience for them. Like, oh, I can do it. Let's do it together. It'll be awesome. Mm. Versus doing it alone. And just like the, the immensity of trying to accomplish this uh, in an isolated or alienated or siloed experience, right? So as leaders, it is absolutely critical that you understand how to create cross-functional links of support for all of your members. It might not be someone on the team, and most likely it shouldn't be, um, so that they can get the support, however it is, whether it's resources, whether it's uh, mentorship, whether it's sponsorship, whether it's just being able to, um, something that I, I talk a lot about, conscious complaining, <laughs> you know, and being able to, you know, have a buddy where you can spend 15 minutes a week just venting about something, getting that pressure release, that opening that pressure valve. So as leaders, really creating these very salient resource links so that every single person on your team knows that they are supported in some way, not just for budget, not just for headcount, not just for the resources. Yeah, that makes me think of that. Like when it comes to measuring, you know, performance, it's important to not just look at, you know, current data on like reflections or just like whether someone got a job done, but like mapping connection points inside of companies. Like how connected is someone? How many touch points does someone have? And I think um, often about the African proverb of, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And it's like, if you have a bunch of people inside of your company who are high performers, but they're going fast alone, you might get a quarter, a half a year, one year out of them. But like long-term success, it's like, you know, that's not really setting up a company or a team or projects. And when I think about doing my best work, um, you know, on episode two of this podcast, um, 
Ashoka Obalu talked about the concept of super friends and having these people where you're like, you know, a, a tribe of people who you trust and like you say, like, let's go create magic together. And like, they might feel like weird words to talk about in the workplace. But when you think about the most joyous experiences you've had in your life, it is with trust. It is with friendship and it's with like those shared experiences. And, you know, for me, I think we can bring that language into the workplace to create cultures of belonging, cultures of inclusion, but also just cultures of high performance. Because when we're doing well, we feel good as well. You know, I, I, I'm so enjoying this conversation. I think we need a code of, like we have a code of conduct. We need a code of magic. <laughs> mm. <laughs> the magic that the workplace needs right now. Exactly. I love it so much. We touched on um, trust. And I think when we think about um, exclusion and trust, these things are you know quite related. And But I wanted to talk about trust in specifically um, in relation to performance and you know, in my opinion, you know, trust isn't an outcome. It isn't something that you just get and keep. You need to constantly be working on trust levels with people. It's not a, it's not a badge. You know, you don't say my work is done. You and I have trust. That's it. It's, I think through every conversation, every behavior, every email, every gesture, every action, we're either building trust or or we're, you know, diminishing trust between um, networks inside a company. So, you know, with that kind of idea, how do you see trust um, impacting our ability to perform as individuals as well as teams? The quickest, most accelerated and expedited way to build trust is the following. Speak from your right hemisphere. Now, I know that that may not make sense to some folks um, because we haven't really unpacked the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. So I'll I'll, I'll try to do this um, quickly here. The left hemisphere is your functional aspect of who you are. And your right hemisphere is the relational aspect of who you are. I'll just give a very quick example of the United Airlines story where the passenger was pulled off the plane. Oscar Munoz, the CEO of United, gave an apology after that incident. And it was very transactional. It was very functional. It was very left hemisphere. And after that apology went public, there was a huge public outcry that the PR team went back and five days later came back with another apology from Oscar, which was completely based on emotion and sentiment and apology. And it was a total right hemisphere relational way of being. And then the public said, well, why wasn't that the first apology? So the mastery in leadership and motivating high-performing teams and continuing to have them perform at the levels that you want is two things. One, become absolutely skilled at vacillating between your left hemisphere and the functional aspects of who you are and the right hemisphere, the relational aspects of who you are. And two, when you are able to masterfully vacillate between left and right, become incredibly fluent in speaking from the left hemisphere, which is advice giving and problem solving, and from the right hemisphere, which is all about seeing the bigger picture, having concern and empathy for the person that, that is, whatever they're going through, and being able to surface the feelings and needs in a conversation. That is the definition of psychological safety. And as we sort of bring this conversation to a close, you know, we've spoken a lot about, um, you know, people who might be, have listened to to these stories and said, you know what, I am feeling excluded in my current team or in my current environment, or, you know, the, the last few months have maybe 
maybe feel that like I have experienced some level of trauma associated with my colleagues or what I've tr- been trying to work through. And, you know, as someone who has spoken a lot about this as well as experienced that, I'm wondering, is there a piece of advice if someone is le- leaving this episode feeling moments of that and they're saying, you know what, this is impacting my ability to perform at work. What's maybe one thing that they can do to start that healing process? So I would get uh, the book called Your Resonant Self by Sarah Payton. Uh, that'll walk you through helping to rewire your right hemisphere. Definitely invite you to visit my website, rajkumarineyogi.com. Um, we have six-week biology of belonging boot camps. Right now they're free. We might be doing one more that's free. So uh, definitely sign up for the newsletter so you can keep apprised of what's happening on over there. And then any final things or anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up this conversation? Because I know we could probably go for a couple more hours on this, but... First and foremost, learn to breathe. The longer that you can feel comfortable with your exhale, the more acetylcholine gets secreted, communicating safety to your nervous system. You can actually walk into a meeting that's high stress to deliver a very uncomfortable message. And if you take 10 seconds to breathe slowly before delivering that message, you can change the way that message is impacted. So get really comfortable with learning how to breathe and to really navigate that landscape of breathing. And the second thing is become curious about who you are and what makes you tick. Because the more you understand who you are, the more you can understand who your team is. I think that's one of the most powerful ways that we're going to leave an episode this season. So Rajkumari Niyogi, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Damon, thank you so much. Take care. A big thank you to Rajkumari Niyogi for joining me on the Culture First podcast. Now, I would love to know what you're thinking and feeling after listening to this episode. As I mentioned during the interview, after Rajkumari talks about epigenetics, people come over swarming at the end of talks, trying to unpack why they're showing up like they do and with questions like, is it because of my great grandma and, and when she lived in Europe and an experience that she had? So I know that like my mind can get blown by talking about this, but I think that's why the final point that we spoke about was so poignant. We need to become curious about who we are and what makes us tick. Now, yes, this is a podcast for Culture First Leaders where I'm sharing conversations that I hope inspires them to lead inclusive and high-performing teams. But as conscious leaders, we also need to understand and get curious about the environments, behaviours and structures where we do our best work. My ask for all of you is to spend some time reflecting on the leaders, teams, organisations and environments where you have felt in a state of flow and where you've been performing at your highest level. And my ask is... How can you map that to your current environment? Because yes, we do bring trauma and PTSD from our previous workplaces and our previous teams and those managers. And we definitely need to unpack all of that as we work through it. But the optimist, the optimist in me really believes that we can bring the best parts and map them into our current environment. And maybe, just maybe, thanks to epigenetics, we can become leaders that impact how your great-great-grandchildren show up in the workplaces of the future. So please share any thoughts that you have by using the hashtag CultureFirstPodcast and tagging at CultureRamp and myself at Damon Klotz, D-A-M-O-N-K-L-O-T-Z. 
and hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to hear your stories. A reminder that this is just one part of an incredible amount of great content that goes with this episode, and you can see the rest of it at culturefirst.com slash working through it. If you've enjoyed this episode, then a review would mean the world to me. Wherever you listen to your podcast, I always love reading the feedback as well as the stories about how it's helping you work through it. And potentially, if there's a colleague or a leader who's helping you work through it during this time, maybe you could send an episode to them to say thanks. I really appreciate you listening and I'll be back soon with another episode of the Culture First podcast.